Well, dear friends, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Chronicles and chapter 31. 2 Chronicles and chapter 31. There you will find a title that Hezekiah organizes the priests. And you will immediately recognize this might not be the most exhilarating chapter of Scripture. Uh, But that's really going to serve the point tonight as we look at a move from exciting times to ordinary ministry. So we'll consider that as we come before our God, read His Word, and hear it expounded. Well, let me pray for us before we read the Scripture together. Heavenly Father, we plead with You to grant us light to understand. We pray, O Lord God, that You would be pleased in Your kindness to give us the Spirit who sanctifies us through the Word of truth. This is the Word of truth. So Lord, would You teach us? Would You rebuke and correct us? Would You train us in righteousness by what You have given? For we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, chapter 31 of 2 Chronicles. This is God's Word. Now when all this, that is the celebration of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Then all the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his possession. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, division by division, each according to his service, the priests and the Levites, for burnt offerings and peace offerings, to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord, and to give thanks and praise. The contribution of the king from his own possessions was for the burnt offerings, the burnt offerings of morning and evening, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the appointed feasts, as it is written in the law of the Lord. And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priests and the Levites, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep, and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God, and weighed them in heaps. In the third month they began to pile up the heaps and finish them in the seventh month. When Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and His people Israel. And Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites about the heaps. Azariah, the chief priest, who was of the house of Zadok, answered him, Since they began to bring the contributions into the house of the Lord, we have eaten and had enough and have plenty left, for the Lord has blessed His people so that we have this large amount left. Then Hezekiah commanded them to prepare chambers in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them, and they faithfully brought in the contributions, the tithes, and the dedicated things. The chief officer in charge of them was Conaniah the Levite, with Shimei his brother as second, while Jehiel and Azaziah 
Nahath, Asahel, Jerimoth, and Jazabad, Eliel, Ishmachiah, Mahath, and Benaiah were overseers assisting Conaniah and Shimei, his brother, by the appointment of Hezekiah the king, and, Az- and Azariah the chief officer of the house of God. And Korah, the son of Imna, the Levite, keeper of the east gate, was over the freewill offerings to God, to apportion the contribution reserved for the Lord and the most holy things. Eden, Mini-Amin, Jeshua, Shemaiah, Amariah, and Shechaniah were faithfully assisting him in the cities of the priests to distribute the portions to their brothers, old and young alike, by divisions, except those enrolled by genealogy, males from three years old and upward, all who entered the house of the Lord as the duty of each day required, for their service according to their offices by their divisions. The enrollment of the priests was according to their father's houses, that of the Levites from twenty years old and upward was according to their offices by their divisions. They were enrolled with all their little children, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, the whole assembly, for they were faithful in keeping themselves holy. And for the sons of Aaron, the priests, who were in the fields of common land belonging to their cities, there were men in the several cities who were designated by name to distribute portions to every male among the priests and to everyone among the Levites who was enrolled. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Well, thus far, God's word, and may he bless it to us this evening. Well, the first two months of Hezekiah's reign have been like a cooling wind in the heat of summer. A refreshing breeze by the awakening of the Holy Spirit has pulled Judah out of copious idolatry toward covenant-keeping practices. Hezekiah, with a heart like David, has gone all out to cleanse the temple, to enable the very dwelling place of God to take centrality in Israel, and to call the people to covenant renewal. Further, the celebration of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread have brought about an interest in religion with joy that hasn't been seen in over 200 years. And yet we should recognize that while Hezekiah wanted to strike while the iron was hot, that is, he wanted to use that provision in Numbers 9 to celebrate Passover in the second month so that the affections for God didn't cool off, At some point, life has to go back to the ordinary. The people are delighted to have the feast for an additional seven days. They did that chapter 30, verse 23. But you can't have a feast forever in this life. The mountaintop experience of great blessing and powerful singing and corporate prayer must give way to the grind of daily living. In our context, we might put it this way. After Sunday's glories comes Monday. Now in our family, we have a tangible sign of this. We have a beautiful calico cat with a striking white coat mixed with black and caramel colors. And what did the ladies of my house name this creature? Sunday, 
of course. The day of beauty and delight, the best day of the week. But then several months ago, this scruffy-looking stray cat with half a tail and a screech that sounds like a dying goat for a meow showed up and has continued to show up, pilfering food and causing ruckus. And what did the ladies of my house give the name to this creature? Monday. The day you don't want. (laughs) Because you wish the day of rest and gladness on Sunday would last forever. Well, one day, the the rest of the Lord's Day, the day of festival and fellowship, will last forever. But here in the text, revival has to return to the normal flow of life. And that's what we're seeing. Hezekiah recognizes that the work isn't done when the vibrant feast has occurred. Indeed, as Matthew Henry puts it, now the hardest part of our work begins. Because if patterns aren't established in the ordinary, those ordinary patterns of religious practice, then the high of the feast will move into total obliteration. In fact, we should all understand that a true revival is not a flash in the pan of exciting religious feelings. True revival brings lasting change, whether to a corporate body or the individual sinner. That we take the high of religious experience, we might say, and we live it out in the day-to-day life. So Hezekiah here aims to promote the day-to-day fight of faith with just the regular ministry of the priests and Levites for the good of the people. Let's see four things in our text. And we begin with idols smashed in verse 1. Now this is something of a transition in the passage from the celebration and zealous devotion of the feast to ordinary living. Because immediately after the great assembly in worship, as they're in Jerusalem, the gathered host all begin going home. And on their way home, it seems, what did they do? Well, verse 1, they went out of the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and broke down the high places and the altars. Now, you may remember that Hezekiah had done this with the idols in the temple in chapter 29. And then as the people came to celebrate Passover, they took all the corrupt altars in the city of Jerusalem to the landfill, which was the brook, Kidron. That was the garbage dump. They took them all there, chapter 30. But here, the idol cleansing spreads out even farther. So from the temple to Jerusalem, now to all Judah. They're pulverizing these pagan pillars throughout Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Note that word, all. How many times... Throughout Kings and Chronicles, have we read of idol-smashing efforts only to hear that the high places remain? Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Jotham, they all brought reform to Judah, but the high places were never totally wiped out. But underneath this revival, the removal of idolatry seems to be comprehensive. Indeed, this is an incredibly positive sign of the sincerity of the spiritual awakening. You see, brethren, when grace, when the grace of God kindles a holy zeal to know the Lord, to worship Him rightly, there is also a holy hatred of sin. Tasting the goodness of God 
stirs the heart to throw off everything that dishonors His name. Saving grace brings a renunciation of the love of sin. Titus 2, the grace that saves us is also grace that trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And if our hearts have been made to burn with love for God, that burning in the soul strives to squash every corruption. The Spirit is lusting against the flesh. That's the principle of new life. And in this new life, there is a destroying of some sins and a delight in other sins. There is rather a universal, comprehensive war against all sin. All idols everywhere become the target of mortification, that work of putting sin to death. What an encouraging display verse 1 should be to us. All these folks who came down from the northern kingdom, hearing of God's compassion, that if they returned to the Lord, He would pardon their sin, they don't take the grace of God lightly. God's grace isn't cheap to them, if I can put it that way. They understand allegiance to the Lord means no other gods, period. And it doesn't matter how costly the idol, or how ornate the construction, or what precious metal was used to make it, they will not hang on to the remnants of spiritual adultery. Well, beloved, do we understand that the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, should have this very same effect on us? Now, we're not going around looking for statues to tear down. That's not usually the representation of idols in our land. But do we look at sin, the gods of pleasure, the gods of fame, the gods of money, the gods of possessions, and see they are not the source of our happiness. Indeed, do we see that the love of self, aiming to satisfy ourselves with indulgence, with stuff, with notoriety, is actually empty and destructive. Sin has not brought us happiness. It's just landed us in misery leading to death because sin never gives what it promises. The pleasure never lasts. The craving is never subdued. That's because you are a slave to sin. But by grace, we've been set free. And we've been set free in Jesus Christ, rescued from doom in Christ. So why in the world would we go on living in sin? Why would we be as a dog returning to its vomit? To do so, to bow down to our old ways would indicate that Christ really isn't our Master. The soul rescued by Jesus becomes a soul now concerned to throw off every sin that clings so closely to me. We don't want any golden calves in our lives. We want a heart that is thoroughly devoted to God. Well, dear people, are we living with this kind of devotion to the Lord? Are we anxious to search our heart for anything that would corrupt us or drag our loyalty away? Do we see sin as repugnant? Not wanting to have our affections ensnared by the things of the world. Furthermore, when the Word of God is preached on the Lord's Day, when we've been convinced of sin, convicted, challenged, called to repentance, do we refuse to put off putting our feet on the neck of our lusts? 
That is, we're going to kill sin now. Do we go home smashing idols? Do we pray, Lord, reveal if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And whatever words I speak, whatever deeds I do, whatever thoughts I think, whatever feelings reside in my heart, let not the instruments of my body be offered up to sin. Because I've been set free from that and I want my whole being to serve the Lord and I want to slay sin in every possible way to evidence that I belong to Christ. My motive is to love Him and I want to love Him with every part of my being. That is what revival is doing in the soul. Is it doing that in ours? But then secondly, see, returning to normal in verses 2-8. to eight, Everyone's gone home and Hezekiah now moves to reestablish the administration of the priests and Levites that David had set up for the functioning of the temple. The old paths, we might call them, were the Levites as officials, singers, gatekeepers, and so forth, taking turns by their divisions, along with the priests, in 24 groups. Now, we read of this quite some time ago in 1 Chronicles about chapter 24 and following. These 24 rotations, obviously they're alternating, so that there's always a group of priests and Levites on duty at the temple to perform the work of the Lord. And we have to be honest, it sounds pretty boring to hear about Hezekiah setting up this rotation. It's like we're reading a, a spreadsheet of who's got deacon's duty next, who's on guard, who is functioning in the sound booth, who's supposed to teach Sunday school, who's supposed to be in the nursery. Sounds pretty boring. But actually here, it's vitally important. What is the work that these priests and Levites are doing? Well, into verse 2, First of all, they're making burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now those offerings, Numbers 28, were to be made every day, morning and evening, in recognition of sin and in recognition of dependence upon God for His pardon and His provision. And without these offerings every day, Israel would be moving forward as though they didn't need God's forgiveness and they didn't need His daily care. Now, we don't make these same types of offerings, obviously, but brethren, it would be the equivalent of you and me waking up in the morning, going throughout our whole day, and then going to bed with the mindset, I don't need Jesus' pardon, I don't need Jesus' peace, and I don't need Jesus' presence. Now, I don't imagine anybody in this room would actually say that, but we can act like it with a practical atheism of failing to pray failing to commune with our God in His Word, failing to value the regular importance of private worship and public worship. Hezekiah doesn't want the practical atheism like this to grip the people. Now, he's not inventing anything new to put his people on track. He just goes back to the old paths, the ordinary ministry of daily offerings. Well, are we committed to the old paths? And the old paths for us are not the blood offerings of animals, but they are the giving of, to God, the sacrifice of praise with the fruit of lips that bless His name. They are coming before the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ 
to praise Him, to sing to Him, to hear from Him, and to make sure we do not neglect the assembling together of the saints. Further, these old paths are offering ourselves up as living sacrifices, day by day in view of the mercy of our God. We pledge our lives to Him, not just once in weekly worship, but every day as the priests of God. Brethren, are we following the old paths? We're not CE Christians, you know, Christmas and Easter Christians. We're not sort of faithful Christians who show up every once in a while. We are duly devoted Christians walking in the path of ordinary, everyday faithfulness. Is that our lives? And then further note that these priests and Levites are not just making offerings, but they're ministering in the gates of the camp of the Lord and they're giving thanks and praise. The priests and Levites are the teachers of God's people and they're there in the camp to teach, to instruct, to make judgments. They're there to help those with wounded consciences make their sacrifices for individual sin. And they're a mouthpiece of the people to God, blessing God's name, praying on behalf of the people. Without this instruction, without the regular religious practice, without prayer and praise, the piety of the nation would just disappear. So Hezekiah is setting up patterns of habitual praise and godly practice. Habitual praise and godly practice. Many of us don't like to think of our daily devotion to the Lord as just a a habit. It sounds like such a dry, dusty word. But there's a habit of faithfulness that you're cultivating your soul. Are you doing that? Hezekiah sees the need. And he's doing it not just because it seems like a good idea to him. He's setting up religious patterns into verse 3 as it is written in the law of the Lord. Hezekiah believes, get this, that devotion to God is expressed by careful attention to God's law. Didn't Jesus tell us the same thing? If you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commandments. Well, have we set our hearts to follow God's Word? Do we show our devotion to Him with ordinary boring, we could say, daily faithfulness. Just doing the daily stuff. But then Hezekiah addresses another practical concern. And it's the offerings. The offerings that were to be given. Not the animal offerings simply to the Lord, but offerings given to maintain the priests themselves. Now, this is very, very practical. You you can't have a functioning priesthood and Levite group doing their temple duties if they don't have food to eat if they have to go back to cultivate fields and raise cattle for themselves and for their own families. God had given stipulations in His law for the people to supply the needs of the priests and Levites so that these men are free to focus on God and to care for the saints. And Hezekiah, verse 4, commands the people in Jerusalem to give the portion do. You can read the background in Numbers 18 about what that portion is. And then he modeled this contribution. In verse 3, he contributed from his own possessions the animals needed for all the offerings. Think about what that cost. All these offerings that are going to be made on a daily basis, Hezekiah says, I'm going to pay for them all. They'll come out of my storehouse. 
But he also called the people to pay the tithe. And another evidence of revival here is as that command goes out, not just in Jerusalem is the command attended to, where the command was given, but verse 5, the people of Israel, as the command spread abroad, gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the field. Now we hear that word abundance again in verse 5. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And we hear about the tithes of cattle and sheep and the tithes of dedicated things that are laid up in heaps. In other words, the people just kept bringing more and more and more. And at present, it was more than could be used. But Hezekiah and the princes of of Judah, they look at these spilling over gifts and they recognize, verse 8, this is from the Lord. Blessed be the Lord and His people Israel. They knew that God has moved in the hearts of His people to give on this scale. You see, there's not just a desire in Hezekiah to do what is commanded. The people have that desire. Now, it's a glorious thing when the leaders in the church want to honor God. And the people of God will never, in their spirituality, on a normal basis, rise higher than the level of her leadership. That's why you must have solid spiritual leaders that they might lead the people in doing the things that are faithful. But if the, if the leadership of the church are the only people who care about honoring God, then you're going to have a problem. When the church truly becomes a blessed place, it's when the saints as a whole desire to glorify God. Was, is that a comprehensive desire that we all have? Not that you know we want to make sure the elders and deacons are doing what they're supposed to do, but we're not really concerned to do what we're supposed to do. No, is there a comprehensive desire to please the Lord? Now this is a message, I think, here by the chronicler to the original audience. You have to remember the timing. It's difficult to hang on to. Chronicles is the last book written in the Old Testament. So this is after Nehemiah has built the wall around Jerusalem and brought further reform. But Nehemiah, after he builds the wall, he goes back to the the land, to Persia. And then he'll come back again to check on things. And much to his dismay... He finds that the regular ministry of the priests and Levites that he reestablished had floundered. In Nehemiah 13, when he comes back to Jerusalem, the Levites had abandoned their temple ministry and gone back to the fields. Why did they do that? Because the people stopped giving the tithe. And you can't just minister in the name of the Lord and starve. They went back and they tried to provide for themselves. Well, this section, I think, is a rebuke to the chronicler's generation. He's saying to them, do you see what faithfulness looks like? Do you see the evidence of true spirituality? Do you see that the grace of God must produce a giving spirit in the hearts of God's people? And beloved, how much more should that be the case in view of the indescribable gift, Jesus Christ, that God has given for us? When we see Christ, if we think of connecting the sermons, if we see everlasting love demonstrated in Jesus, love that is beyond all description, shouldn't we want to do whatever we can for His name? Shouldn't we be willing to give whatever we have? And what a glorious thing it is when the hearts of the saints are united to fear God's name and to follow God's commandments. Well, may the Lord bless us 
here with a readiness to do His will. Indeed, beloved, may we see heaps of gifts flooding into the church to care for our staff, to give to our missionaries, to provide for needy people, and as we have opportunity, to do good to all. Because this is the way that the Lord works. Well, then third we see, faithful administration. Hezekiah praised the Lord for these overflowing gifts and he commended the people. But he did question the Levites about the heaps. From the third month to the seventh month, we seem to have like a mound of stuff piling up in the contributions. And why are God's gifts laying around? He wants to know. Well, Azariah the chief priest, verse 10, explains that all that the priests and Levites need has been met. Their, Their needs are taken care of. The heaps are the leftovers because the Lord has been abundantly faithful to His people. Well, the abundance here immediately moves Hezekiah into action. And notice verse 11, He commanded them, that is the priests and Levites, to prepare chambers in the house of the Lord. Hezekiah is a shrewd, wise man. And he recognizes There are times when gifts are in abundance and there are times when gifts are meager. So, right now, there should be a storing up when there's plenty. So the priests and Levites do what he said. They, verse 12, faithfully brought in the contributions, the tithes, and the dedicated things. And they arranged overseers, a chief officer, Conaniah, and a second, Shimei, verse 12, and then ten more men assisted them. Additionally, verse 14, there was a man named Koray who was set over the freewill offerings of God. And he's apportioning the contribution reserved for the Lord and the most holy offerings. And six more men are faithfully assisting him in the cities of the priests so they might distribute the gifts that have come in to the necessary people, old and young alike. Now, brethren, let it be recognized here that the gifts are coming to the Lord but the gifts are not to be hoarded. They're to be distributed. I want you to listen to Matthew Henry's comment here as he applies this. He says, church treasures are not to be hoarded any longer than till there is an occasion for them, lest the rust should be a witness against those who hoard them. What is Henry saying? Well, he's saying the church is not in the business of making money. We are not a for-profit organization. Yes, we take in funds, but those funds are intended to be distributed, to be given away, given in, in care of those who make their living by the gospel. That would be me in this church. Given to take the gospel and spread it to the ends of the earth given to help the lowly, the needy in our midst, given to be engaging in good works as much as we have opportunity and when the need arises. The money that comes into the church is God's money. It's not our money. And it's to be used for God's purposes. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we empty the coffers at every opportunity, giving all that we have, whatever we had today in the In the offerings, we just start handing it out. That's not what he means. The whole reason Hezekiah commanded for chambers to be set up is to store up. We want to make sure we have plenty in the days when plenty comes in, that we might take care of things when the plenty is gone. 
But the days of plenty can never be turned into gathering wealth. What is given to God is meant to go out for God's purpose. So the mentality Hezekiah is cultivating and that we should cultivate is we should be sensibly looking for ways to give. And that's what's happening here as Corey and the others are faithfully assisting him are simply distributing the funds. They're making sure all the priests, all those who could eat the holy offerings are getting their share. In this case for the priests, it's the males from three years old and upward receiving the offerings. Now you may practically ask, why would the young sons of the priests be supplied with the gifts as though they're functioning in the priesthood? We've got to remember all the way back to young Samuel. Remember when Hannah presents him to the Lord about the age of three, comes into Eli's care, who's the priest. And even at that young age, Samuel is brought along in doing priestly duties. I think there's a principle for us to learn here. Our children should be taught to serve the Lord, to engage in the practical duties of godliness from their earliest years. This is how we raise children to serve Christ. We teach them that service to the Lord Jesus is as natural as breathing. It's just what we do. And we bring them along in it. Well, the the gifts are being distributed even to the young ones who are participating in the work. And then these distributors also took care of the Levites who began their service at 20 years old. And of course, the Levites' families are also cared for as they are throughout the land. Though the work of the Levites is in Jerusalem when they're on their rotation, the rest of the year they live throughout all Judah and Israel. So the distribution met them where they were. Verse 19, there were men designated by name to distribute portions to every male among the priests and everyone among the Levites who are enrolled. Now there are name lists in this section. You know, the part we like to skip over, we don't have to say those names. And then here, there's just a group of people who are distributing and we don't even know what their names are. They're not mentioned. They're just some guys distributing funds. But hearing, brethren, of overseers and assistants, hearing of men designated to distribute funds should remind us that no one man like Hezekiah in all of Hezekiah's godliness, no one man can make things work as they ought. No one man can make the church what it ought to be. No one man can do all the work that needs to be done in ministry. No one man can carry out all the responsibilities among the body. Here, there's a whole host of faithful people known to the Lord. We don't even know their names. They're just mentioned to us. But they're all engaged in the Lord's work. Well, that is to be true among us as well. There are known people marked out, elders and deacons, scheduled servants for the nursery, the sound booth, security officers, the narthex, the church office. We all know who those people are. And then there are unknown folks quietly doing acts of service throughout the entire body. And Paul will say it's as each part does its work that we build ourselves up in love, that we grow into Him who is the head. Well, do we see ourselves as a part of that system, we might say? 
one gifted for service and ready to do the service even if I don't have a title in engaging in the service. Indeed, the key here is not what you're doing, but being faithful in the doing of it. Did you notice the emphasis in the text on the word faithfulness? Verse 12, we have men faithfully bringing in contributions. Verse 15, we have those faithfully assisting. And verse 18, we have Levites who were faithful in keeping themselves holy. What is it God requires of us, whether we are official servants or not? Faithfulness. What did Jesus say when He returns? He'll be looking for among us. Matthew 24, He'll be looking for the faithful and wise servant. The one found doing His will. And what will He say to those servants? Well done, good and faithful servant. Paul likewise tells officers in the church, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Well, whether we are official servants or those without a title and job per se, do we find ourselves engaged in faithfulness? Are we faithful in the preeminently important task to the mundane things? Do we engage in all of it with an eye to our God, willing to be faithful in the smallest of duties, not for the glory that comes from man, but with thanksgiving to the Lord, because that's how He builds up His people. Well, brother, may the Lord bless us with abundant gifts and ready servants. But may we have, more than anything, great faithfulness in honoring the God who has blessed us. And then finally, see with me, briefly, wholehearted service. At the close of our chapter, the author gives us a summation on Hezekiah's ministry or reign. Verse 20, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. The author is telling us two things here in this section. Hezekiah is the driving force under God under which all these reforms occur in the land. He was a towering figure on the scale of, say, a Luther or a Calvin or a Knox, turning God's people back to the Lord and to right worship. And the Lord is often pleased to use great leaders, men with fire in their gut, so to speak, men with administrative gifts and the force of personality to move the people to faithfulness. Well, that's what He does with Hezekiah. And as Hezekiah engages in these reforms, the Word of God provides here an evaluation of his character. This man did what was good. That is, what's acceptable to God. And he did what was right. The things that were righteous according to the law and not his own ideas. And he did what was faithful. He did what expressed loyalty to the Lord in truth. What a model to us. Are we conscious of walking before the Lord and eager to do what He tells us is good and what He tells us is right and what He deems to be an expression of faithfulness. You don't get to define what a good work is. God does in His Word. So are we concerned to pay attention to what God tells us to do and be faithful to those things? Do we live our lives according to the Word of God? We're not trying to earn this massive reputation of being you know, someone spilling over with service in the world because they don't even know what a good work is. We're concerned for ordinary faithfulness in the day-to-day doing the good works God has called us to do. And then secondly, 
the chronicler further says something about Hezekiah, verse 21. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in, accord, in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. What a convicting declaration that is. Hezekiah didn't do some work with all of his heart. He didn't do most things with all of his heart. He did every work with the deepest commitment to God from the depths of his being. He is not a half-hearted man. He did not engage in religious formalism. Just going through the motions, doing his duty with dry affections. He was zealous, earnest, intense in service, and wholeheartedly engaged to seek God. Now, that doesn't mean he was sinless. It doesn't mean he never had a day when he needed to rouse his soul to do the right thing from the right spirit. But it clearly means he had a comprehensive concern to give God his all, to seek the Lord with loyalty, and to throw off every lesser thing that might get in the way. Well, beloved, this is what God requires of us. His grace calls us to serve Him with all our hearts. We are to undertake our labors in the church with a zeal to please Christ in every way. And I ask you as I ask myself, do we have that kind of deep passion to live for God? Do we refuse to be double-minded? Or those who would sort of engage in the work of faithfulness? Do we think faithfulness is proven as a warm body that shows up to worship? Now, don't get me wrong. Part of faithfulness is being present. You can't serve God in public worship if you aren't present. But physical presence isn't enough. God wants our hearts. He wants our affections that we would, as the Levites are doing in the last chapter, sing with all our might, receiving His Word with delight. Was that the pattern of us? In our hearts do we see this kind of affection to the Lord so that when we feel spiritually lethargic, and I'm sure no one ever feels that way, when we feel cold, when we're struggling to stir our affections as they should be, we do what David did. We grab ourselves by the lapels and we command ourselves, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me bless His holy name. Do we tell our hearts, get it together by looking at the Lord and His benefits and forget not all His benefits? That is the faithful spirit by which Hezekiah lived. He sought God earnestly and he labored for God vigorously. May we learn from Him. Indeed, as a challenge to us, may we see in view of our greater benefits the coming of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit, that that should produce even greater zeal for the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, when Paul is laying out the actions of sincere love to the Lord as those gifted to serve, he says that let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And then he says this, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, or better, be boiling in spirit, serving the Lord. May we pray that God would do that in us. Not in the extraordinary days, brethren, but just in the ordinary. 
May the Lord help us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You show us the nature of an ordinary ministry that has scheduled servants, that has engineered times of worship and teaching. Lord, may we recognize that and engage in habits of godliness. We also pray, though, Lord, that You would stir up our hearts. Lord, we know that our hearts are weak. We know that we struggle to do all that we should, but we pray You would give us faithfulness, that You would give us earnestness, and You would cause us to desire to live for Your glory at every moment. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.